Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another one of my Podbean podcasts and YouTube videos on GaudiMitzbez22.com blog. I am Dr. Larry Chapp. I'm joined by a repeat uh, visitor here to the blog, someone I am most happy to have back on, and I'm speaking of Monsignor Michael Heinz. Uh, Monsignor is currently the uh, academic dean at Mount St. Mary Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, my alma mater, where I went to seminary. He is also a professor of theology there. He's a priest of the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, got his Ph.D. eventually, uh, I believe in, in at Notre Dame, but I can't remember the year. 2008. 2008. Uh, and the Ph.D. was in patristics. And he taught at Notre Dame for uh, many years, ran their Master of Divinity program and so on before heading out to Emmitsburg, all right, where he teaches patristics, liturgy, Christology, and serves as academic dean, as I said. Is there anything he doesn't do at Mount St. Mary's? That would be that would be the deeper question. And uh, I gave a lecture at the Mount uh, last year at some point at last your request. Very, very well received. The guys loved it. Oh, well, thank you for that. And it was my my first return there, really, since leaving the seminary in 1986. Uh, and I have to say it was an absolute joy and a pleasure to be back on the holy soil of, of the Mount. And I do absolutely love the Mount. Uh, I think it's, it's, a, good, it's, good, it's a happy and holy place. It's a special place and uh, not just for those who have gone there. It's a special place in the history of American Catholicism in, in so many, so many ways. It's the oldest, the, the, the oldest Catholic independent, the oldest independent Catholic university in the United States. I think Georgetown is older, but of course they were run by the Jesuits. Yeah, no, and we also have on the campus the, Gra the National Shrine of the Grotto of Our Lady of Lourdes, which there are 400,000 people who pilgrimage each year here. And it's a, it's a little known secret. It's right up the hill as part of our campus. It's beautiful. Yeah, I would recommend that people go there too. If you haven't been to the National Shrine of Our Lady of Lourdes, uh, it's an easy drive. It's, you know, the, the shrine is on the side of the mountain that is behind Mount St. Mary's, uh, but it's an easy drive up there. There's an access road. There's a parking lot, a beautiful golden statue of Mary on top of a large bell tower. There is a uh, church chapel there with reserved Eucharist. Uh, there's a gift shop. And then you walk up this gorgeous pathway into the woods up the hill to the uh, the replica of the grotto of Our Lady of Lourdes. And uh, there's a there's a stream that runs through there. And I would recommend people go when the dogwoods are blooming in the Catoctin Mountains because Beautiful. the dogwoods are everywhere. So anyway, that's my plug for the mount and so on. But we're going to uh, we're going to discuss where uh, Monsignor has a special love for and a specialization in the theology of one of my favorite theologians, Louis Bouillet. Louis Bouillet was a, uh, a convert, uh, and he was a priest, eventually the oratory, and he was very, very influential theologically in the liturgical movement that led up to Vatican II, so much so, in fact, that Paul VI put him on the, in the committee uh, that helped to reform the liturgy. More on that in a second. Uh, but he was also just a fantastic and a brilliant, and what's often forgotten, a brilliant systematic theologian. And I, one of the reasons why I love him is that his, his theological output rivals that of Hans Urs von Balthasar, the man that I did my doctoral dissertation on. One of the criticisms of Ressourcement Theologie is that for all of its production, None of the resource month theologians really produced a systematic 
theology, other than, I think, Bouyer and Balthazar. Maybe there's one or two others, but all of the others tend to have been more topical and occasional sort of. De Lubac was kind of all over the map in his various writings. Uh, you know, maybe Guardini could be listed as somebody with a more systematic approach. But anyway, uh, we, we're going to begin with a discussion of liturgy here today, but then move on quickly to a discussion of, of Bouyer's theology, in particular with an eye towards how Louis Bouyer would react to the current crisis in our culture and our church today. Well, let's begin with the liturgy. And I want to begin with liturgy because obviously liturgy, since the council has been a hot topic, and it's just a debated issue that just never seems to want to go away. And one of the things that I have noticed is that uh, very, very, very conservative Catholics of the sort of traditionalist sort who, who want to maintain that only the traditional Latin mass you know, before the council is, is the one that we should use. It should be the ordinary form of liturgy again. And they heap scorn on the Novus Ordo, and they turn to Bouillet as kind of their champion in some ways, because it's true. In his memoirs, which I have read, and I'm sure Monsignor has as well, Bouillet makes a big deal about the fact that he was not happy with the goings on at on the liturgical committee that he was on, in particular with Bishop Bugnini, who he thought was not entirely honest with either the Pope or with the committee, and that Bugnini engineered uh, a fast tra- a fast tracked liturgy that was not what the council wanted, not what the committee wanted, not what the Pope wanted, not what anybody wanted, and that it, we ended up with this horrible, horrible, terrible thing called the Novus Ordo. Uh, And then for whatever reason, and mysteriously, Pope Paul VI decided to go with it anyway. Uh, And so that's where we are. We're stuck with this horrible Novus Ordo because of (laughs) Bugnini. And that's what Bouillet claims as well, as well as the fact Eucharistic prayer too. the the apocryphal story goes, was written on the back of a napkin by Bouillet. Well, it was written under some haste in Trastevere at a cafe with Bouillet and one other person because the Pope had requested it. Yes, it was written in some haste, uh, but it was not written on the back of a napkin in 40 minutes or something like that, as the apocryphal story goes. But anyway, I throw that out there in order to now get your comments, Monsignor. What what do you make of of Bouillet's participation in the post-conciliar liturgical reform? And what was what were Bouillet's real true views of the of the old mass and whether or not it needed to be reformed? Sure. I think just by the way, in terms of Eucharistic prayer too, I guess if if there's someone to compose the Eucharistic prayer on behalf of the church, I couldn't think of two better people than Louis Bouillet and Bernard Bott, who were the ones who were behind that. So if you want to complain, at least there are substantive theological thinkers who think with the mind of the church and understood the tradition actually being the ones, however that came to be. I think, first of all, we're only 60 years out from the conciliar moment, and I subscribe to the view articulated by people like Robert Mbelli and Matthew Levering, that the council is an ongoing theological event. That is, we're still appropriating the riches of what was given to us between 1962 and 1965 in that moment. Um, We live, because of that, we tend to think, uh, I think sort of myopically, uh, that everything was done in 65 and just finished. I still think we're appropriating the full meaning of Sacrosanct Concilium. Pope Benedict spoke about the reform of the reform. It's an ongoing thing. that does not mean, it certainly seems to me, that does not mean simply a return to the status quo ante. Um, more on Boyer and that in a moment. But I also think that liturgy has become, <clears throat> in Catholic life, for some, 
uh, for many actually, a deeply sort of neuralgic thing that any kind of talk about it, it, it sort of evokes a lot of deep sentiment, sometimes anger, confusion, frustration. Um, and certainly there have been plenty of abuses in the course of the last 60 years that have happened in the course of or related to the liturgy. We just read this week about uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. Um, uh, oh, my, yes. You know, uh, how the liturgy, in a sense, was hijacked there and used for political purposes, unbeknownst to the people, of course, at the, at the cathedral itself, um, it seems to me. Uh, but I think because of that, I also think that the devil, his principal mode of operation is division. And it's it's ironic and tragic that the, the principle of the church's unity, which is the Eucharistic celebration, has become in some places and in some hearts a principle of deep division and hostility, which is, to me, demonic. We can certainly point out things that have been done in the liturgy or apart from the liturgy that are certainly not not good. Um, but that doesn't seem to me to allow us kind of wholesale rejection of, of the Second Vatican Council. That Bouillet himself, right as soon as uh, Sacrosanct Concilium was promulgated, he wrote a beautiful commentary on it, which he entitled The Liturgy Revived. Um, he knew, and his criticisms of the reform had little to do with Sacrosanct Concilium, which he thought was a magnificent document, and what it called for was magnificent. It had to do with the ways in which, especially in France, some of the implementations were being done with just, just crazy stuff from sort of like we can joke about the 60s and 70s, but that's what he was reacting to. Um, the way it was done, and in fact, the way it's con you know, it has it's, it's evolved to be where it is. I wouldn't be surprised that in a hundred years, some of the uh elements of that reform are finally not, I wouldn't say completed, but brought around, and the elements from the extraordinary form are perhaps restored or reanimate uh, the ordinary form. What people really want, you and I know this, you 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 attend mass regularly, you're faithful, uh, is reverence and prayerfulness. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, I have plenty of people who are older who remember the extraordinary form growing up, who say that it could be just as irreverently celebrated in eight minutes as, you know, the the the, uh, the ordinary form we have today. So it, reverence is, is not exclusive of the extraordinary form and irreverence isn't exclusive of the ordinary form. Uh, both could be abused. Uh, so I think paying attention to the fact that I am not in charge of the reform of the reform. There's elements, for example, of the current baptismal rite that I would love to see enhanced by bringing back some things from the, what we would call the older extraordinary form rite, the form antiquier, the exaflations, the blessed salt. There are things like that I would love to see reintroduced. However, I wouldn't want to simply return to that because that is a, that form of baptism is completely devoid of scripture. And there is no opportunity to preach for example, in that, yeah, uh, yeah, in that moment. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there's elements that I think we're still appropriating. It's not given to me, it's not my, within my purview or authority to begin you know, uh, changing things or creating some kind of a hybrid that appeals to my own preferences. Um, God's called me to be a priest. I've said this to a couple of my priest friends who are more traditionalist. God's called us to be priests right now, not 100 years ago and not 100 years from now. Our task is to be faithful to what the church asks us to do now, even if there's elements of it that might not be our preference or to our taste. We're called to be faithful to it. Now, Bouillet was certainly, he certainly saw the older form, like the form he experienced as a recent convert in the 40s and early 50s, as in need of reform. He saw it as, in, he, in his book, Decomposition of Catholicism, he refers to it as, a, as an embalmed corpse. That is to yeah. say, the body is there. 
that it's lacking in blood, the vivifying principle, which at least the scriptures, of course, also clear with the soul. It was it had lost its soul, so to speak. It was mechanical, and there wasn't people didn't understand what they were doing, what was going on. It was in a language most people didn't understand. Now he wasn't against the use of Latin, and in fact, Latin ordinary is not a problem, and it, certainly he wouldn't have thought it was a problem. But the readings in a the language they didn't understand, and the and the diet of scripture being much more limited, he saw a need of reform. However. What he saw going on in France in the late 60s and early 70s, he referred to not as an embalmed cadaver, but a decaying corpse. Not only is the is the soul gone through, the body's falling apart. The material. <laughs> okay. So, it, so that, that the solution is not, you know, uh, kumbaya and uh, beer and pizza masses. You know, uh, the focus is on his concern. What what active, full conscious and active participation meant for Bouillet and for Sacrosanct Conjulium, to be quite honest, was not that everyone has a role in the liturgy actively in the sanctuary. It means that everyone understands what's going on and participates fully, mind, heart, and soul in offering the sacrifice, the one sacrifice of Christ yeah. in the course of the liturgy, and also in a way that was intelligible to them, that they understood what they were doing. They weren't merely spectators watching the priest perform a sacred act, but they were uniting themselves to Christ in and through his priestly ministry and sharing in that one sacrifice of Christ. Bouillet was concerned very much to have people understand what they were doing. Um, and, um, excuse me, my phone is ringing. <laughs> That's okay. It's the rector, but I had to hang up on him because I... Uh, well, tell Monsignor Baker that, uh, yes, that you had... Well, I don't want to take this call right now. If he tries me again, I'm going to text him and say, hey, boss, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on a podcast with, with Larry. Well, if, by the way, I'm doing a podcast with Monsignor Baker yeah, next week. He told me. Yeah, yeah he told yeah. me that. I'm, I'm going to send him a note just now that... Uh, yeah. Um, tell him you're on a podcast with, uh, <laughs> with Larry Chap, so we can go. Yeah. Uh, while while you're doing that, uh, well, I appreciate those remarks about Bouillet because that's that's what I have gleaned from his writings as well. That the old mass needed to be reformed. Uh, there needed to be a greater active participation, uh, actuosa participatio, by the laity that went beyond simply silently sitting there contemplating. It is possible to be very actively participating in a liturgy and to remain silent if one enters into it contemplatively. But we are incarnational beings, as I've said before many times in with various uh, interviewers. And uh, and we do need, I, I appreciate as a layman, the, the, the kinetic elements, the movement, the up, the down, the speaking, the dialogic responses, hearing the the reading, you know, I'm a theologian, I, you know, I know some Latin, and yet I still like the mass in the vernacular. I really do, especially the readings and, and things like that. If they decided to go back to Latin for the Eucharistic prayers, okay, fine. I could live with that. Uh, and so on. No, uh, and if they did, most people would still know what's going on, even without the benefit of Latin, because they know the mass parts already. That's um, right. They know all the mass the parts. It's not A or B, like as a bind, like we're not, we're not facing a binary choice. Um, right. It's really a matter of integration, uh, and and again, we're, we we haven't seen the, the reform is still ongoing. Uh, yeah, and so I mean, the DDF just put out the document, justice uh, justice verbisque, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, about translated means do the red, say the black. You know, do uh, the red, say the black. Now that brings me to asks us to do. It's not hard. Now uh, that brings me to one last question. Mm -hmm. It's, it's going to be a bit of a curveball, and it has nothing to do with Bouillet. But the, uh, but I've been asking a lot of my guests this, especially those involved in seminary formation. Mm -hmm. it, I wrote an article on Justice Verbisque for Catholic World Report. Mm 
and noted the fact that one of the reasons why the DDF wrote this document is that there was some question about certain baptismal formulas. Mm -hmm. All right. We baptize you or I baptize you in the name of the the creator, the redeemer and the sanctifier. And so and that these are invalid forms of baptism. I can't tell you how many people I had write me privately who are in a mad panic now saying I was baptized in the 1970s and I have no idea if it was valid. Now, is this an issue at seminaries at oh, Mount no, St. Mary's? It's a different generation being formed for priesthood today. Um, I think the generation right before my own, I was kind of on the cusp between the old and the new and the generation before my own took the, took the, the rubric. These are similar words and applied it to everything. The yeah. current generation sees these are similar words and is terrified. They, they don't want the idea of any kind of freedom to improvise. Yeah. Liturgy encourages it. And so it's interesting. It's different. I'm not worried about this generation ever changing the formulas or messing with that. This is well, my, my, my concern is actually, I should have been clearer. My concern is uh, a, a more nettlesome one. Are there seminarians at the Mount who are concerned that they were invalidly baptized? That, that, is, that, that has arisen in different moments in the course of my time here. And if there was, I mean, first of all, you don't, first of all, we don't rebaptize anyone. There's conditional baptism. Mm -hmm. I'm not aware of anybody, you know, uh, you know, I mean, I probably think of my time here. There have been moments when somebody discovers a video of their baptism. Yeah. And thank God for video, because at least there's evidence, you know, um, and it really clearly is like, mm, I don't think that's valid. And there has to be doubt. You can't just say, well, you were baptized in the 70. That's sufficient doubt to condition yeah. baptism. <laughs> um, you know, uh, that really isn't. So that yeah. the, the church assumes the validity of sacraments unless it can be demonstrated otherwise. Unless it can demonstrate otherwise. Well, that's, you know, that's a good point. If there's demonstrable, if you have a video that the priest says, I baptize you in the name of the Creator, or, you know, uh, is doing immersion and only dipping the rear end of the child in the water, you know, water has to get to the head somehow. You know, there's any number of ways that can happen, but you know, we're not baptizing the fanny. You know, it's it's, it's the water's got to get to the head. So there's there's ways in which it really is funny. Sadly, actually, that the bar for validity is pretty low with all the sacraments. It's not yeah. hard, and yet the the struggle some clerics have to attain that bar is is incredible. You know? Yeah, especially of my generation, mm -hmm. uh, growing up, what we went through. Oh my goodness! I'm older than you are. Uh, I was born in 1958. I know you look you look younger, but I, I'm a little younger than you. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I know that there are still liturgical abuses out there, but uh, I, I I always try to tell this younger generation who are upset with current liturgical abuses, you have no idea. <laughs> you just have no exactly. idea yeah. what and, it and was like. To me, the essence of a liturgical abuse is the imposition of my preference. Where it doesn't belong you know that's right. like x or y or z i'm not the church and that's right there's things i would i like to see some things reformed in in the various rights sure but that's way about it's incredibly hubristic yeah that's right because i and i actually know the languages i know the history yeah i'm not in a position to just start changing things because of my preferences so i i trust the church and i trust the spirit's guidance of the church i surrender to that and i celebrate the the sacraments and the mass as the church asks me to do it. It's, it's, it's right. difficult. I remember when I took liturgy at Mount St. Mary's and Monsignor Quinn was our liturgy oh, teacher. Famous John R. Quinn. The famous John Quinn. And I remember uh, he once pointed out, for example, at the, uh, the old translation, the old ISIL translation of the mass 
where the priest elevates the host and says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, Monsignor Quinn always pointed out that the Latin is ecce. Behold, it's an imperative, ecce. And so we would ask him, Monsignor Quinn, so why don't you say that at Mass? He goes, but that's not for me to change. <laughs> and it did eventually get changed. You know, now, no, now it is. That. Behold. There are, places, there, there are prayers, for example, I, I've always... In the new translation, which is a far improvement on the older translation, there's still places where I just, I'm never fond of talk, speaking about heavenly delights because I feel like I'm in Narnia. Uh, <laughs> having feasted on these heavenly delights. Or That's right. The language of festivities, which makes me sound like I feel like I'm at a party or a quinceanera, which is a real festivity, but that's not what we're talking about. In the, that's uh, not this, yeah. Yeah. So, right. again, that's, I don't have, that's, it's not within my purview. I don't have the right to change that. Yes. Well, to bring it back then before we move on, I mean, and th th it had to contextualize Bouye and his historical moment when he was complaining bitterly about the liturgical reforms. He was not complaining that the, that the old Latin mass was touched and changed. He wasn't complaining about the Novus Ordo as such. He was complaining about exactly these kinds of deformations that you and I have been talking and, and about. And the ways in which Sacrosanct Concilium was not implemented in places where it should have been, or in the name of Sacrosanct Concilium, things were done which it had, not, had no intention of doing. That's right. And, That's right. And, and he saw this, again, this is the late 60s, early 70s, which I was an infant in those years, so I don't have any recollection of it. You would remember it. That was a, a really heady time. And I think in France in particular, I mean, he turned down the red hat. He was offered, John Paul VI offered to make him a cardinal, and he declined simply because he was such a... Uh, firebrand and such a, a uh, vocal opponent of the way even some of the French bishops were implementing the, 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 the conciliar yeah. documents. And he certainly saw Bugnini as engaged in kinds of chicanery. That, that's very clear and very true. Well, that's why Bugnini ended up as the Vatican delegate to Iran, I believe, or Iraq <laughs> or something. He got exiled. It's yeah. funny. He was offered Cardinal, turned it down. The Guardini was Romano Guardini was also offered the red hat by Paul VI, and he also turned it down. So, uh, I mean, de Lubac eventually accepted the red hat, but I think he got his from John Paul. He did. And Danielu, Paul VI gave one to Danielu, who did not. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And uh, I know that Balthazar was named a Cardinal and died before the consistory, yeah. but was granted and, and the, the, the enemies of Balthazar like to point out that he was not a cardinal. He died before he was made a cardinal, except that John Paul granted an exception mm. and declared him a cardinal posthumously, which is why on von Balthazar's grave on his tombstone, it says Cardinal oh, von Balthazar. I think he also he also passed away in the sacristy. If I'm, not, I'm not. That's right. In the sacristy. That's the yeah. place to go, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, uh, so let's move on the liturgy and and so uh, from liturgy. And so I'm glad we got that out of the way, because it has bothered me lately because I, I read so much on Bouillet on liturgy to see him in some sense co-opted as some sort of bitter opponent of the Novus Ordo, which is simply not true. Yeah. Not true at all. Anyway, let's move on yeah, then. A little book on the on the Sacrosanct Concilium. It's 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 a beautiful reflection, and it's certainly. What is the name of the book for, for my for my liturgy, viewers? It's it's probably out of print, but it's called the Liturgy Revived, I believe. And he wrote it, as far as I know, in English. So it was written in English and published in English. Yes, and it should be remembered that he did spend some time teaching at Mount Saint Mary's. He was at Mount Saint Mary's, uh, summers at Notre Dame, Brown, San, University of San Francisco, a number of places. 
And this afternoon, I will be I will be interviewing uh, a Mountie who is now a bishop, uh, a friend of mine that I was at seminary with, Bishop James Conley of Lincoln, Nebraska. The great, the great Diocese of Lincoln. That's right. And we're going to be I'm going to be doing an interview with Bishop Conley and Adam Bartlett, uh, who has uh, tried to revive liturgical music. But anyway, that's for this afternoon. So today's a, a, a liturgy conversation day. Uh, before we move on to and before I forget, before we get to the end of this, what are some because my viewers always want to know this. What are some books by Louis Bouillet that you would recommend that people get? I would recommend his book. And I think it's just been reprinted. The Church of God, which is his ecclesiology beyond that what what's some he's got this uh, yeah, book the entree <coughs> there's lots of things i'd recommend but i think the entree books would be his introduction to christians to, to, to spiritual life which is very accessible um and the his book christian initiation which is on the baptismal vocation if you can get through and he says you can bypass the first chapter or two because it's a little more his his attempt at kind of a natural theology and he says to the reader you don't have to read it but the rest of the book is basically an account of the baptismal vocation to sanctity. It's part of a trilogy he had written on the states of life. So, you know, he wrote the original one was on the monastic life, which was really reflecting on the evangelical councils. Yeah. And, uh, and then he wrote Christian initiation, the baptismal vocation. The last book that he wrote, and I've got a friend of mine named Maria McMahon uh, from South Bend. She and I have a rough translation, the first draft of a translation of his book on the meaning of the priestly life. And, never been translated. We have a draft of it. We're, we're trying to work to revise it. She's a young mother with many children, so it's it's trying to get our schedules together to work on it. But she and I have had a lot of fun working with Bouillet and the book on priesthood, which has some wonderful stuff in it. Um, but I think Introduction to the Spiritual Life, Christian Initiation, his book, The Meaning, that would sometimes translate The Meaning of Sacred Scriptures, the, the Bible and the Gospel, is a wonderful theological reading of the whole of Scripture. Uh, I think what people are, people have been fed more recently, um, not by sort of the technical exegetical work of great scholars, which is important, and I don't want to yeah. dismiss it, but it's, I mean, I, I, I've not, I, Raymond Brown was a great scholar. I've never found reading his commentary in John a prompt to prayer. Some of his other books, like A Crucified Christ and Holy Week, fantastic for prayer and preaching. You know, uh, Archbishop Laurie, who's the Archbishop of Baltimore and under whose chancellorship this seminary functions, has said, you know, we need a theology that is prayable and preachable. That's a really good point. And so, um, you know, Bouillet's books are prayable and preachable. So I was in Christian Initiation, the book on the scriptures, uh, the uh, the uh, Introduction to Spiritual Life would be the three places I'd say to start. With start Bouillet. there. What about his book on Eucharist? I have, I'm looking up that, at my bookshelf. It's, it's a rather technical collection. It's a big, thick thing. Yeah, yeah it's a collection yeah. of, yeah, it's, it's very technical. More than, and then a yeah. and his book on the church is also very thick, but it's it's a sort of a systematic ecclesiology. It's much, uh, I love this. One of my first books that I personally read by Bouillet, and uh, that's sort of where I, I got into him. But anyway, okay, so those are some recommendations for people to go to Amazon.com if they want to bring themselves up to speed with Bouillet. And give, part Jim, of the race. Jeff, Bezos, and give Jeff Bezos money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah base, give Bezos some money. All right. Well, we can also say that Ignatius Press has published some of Bouillet's work. So Bouillet, you can and go, then Clooney you, Media. Clooney Media is the other. Clooney. Uh, so you can go straight John to their pages and yeah. order from them directly. John Emmett Clark, Ignatius have done the Yeoman's work. Uh, Ignatius did a lot of stuff with the earlier, in the 1980s, 90s, publishing Bouillet. And Clooney more recently has done a wonderful job getting things out. Um, I. 
I, uh, I'm hoping, I'm working right now, one of my projects is I'm translating his Habilitation Schrift, or what the Germans would call the Habilitation, his second dissertation. Second dissertation, on, yeah. On Athanasius and the church, which I'm about halfway through. Uh, it's a, it's not very lengthy, but it's beautiful. And it's allowed me to dive into to Boyer and some more deeply into Athanasius as well. And uh, uh, Emmaus Academics is going to publish that, and, and uh, I'm excited very about Very good. So. Excellent. So let's move on to like the 15 minutes we have left here or so. Uh, The crisis of today. I've written extensively about it. I mean, since I started blogging and YouTube. I read your book last summer, The Moment of Christian Witness. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I thank you for that plug. Confession of a Catholic Worker, Our Moment of Christian Witness, Ignatius Press. Go out and buy it, everyone. Uh, But yeah, to me, I brought together in that book, the two great theological loves of my life, and that is the Resourcement theology, specifically Balthazar, mm-hmm. and the theological vision of Dorothy Day, Peter Morn, and the Catholic Worker Movement. And the reason why I saw them as, as fitting together like a hand into a glove is that something you've already talked about here in the books that you've actually recommended from Bouillet uh, the essence of the Resourcement project in many, many, many ways can be boiled down to the desire to bring together theology and sanctity, theology and spirituality, to heal the division that had risen in the church between merely devotional spiritualities and then hard scholastic dogmatic theology that, as Archbishop Laurie said, we need a theology that we can pray all right, and, 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 and preach. And, and this was Resourcement theology. And this is what the Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker Movement was all on about. They were about the fact that the laity needed to live the evangelical councils, the universal call to holiness, one of the central features of Vatican II and of Resourcement theology. That is the heart and soul of my book. Balthazar saw it as well in his book, The Moment of Christian Witness. Now is the time for a lay revolution in the church. Now is the time for people to stand up and and be counted, to to do the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, to live the Sermon on the Mount, be that leavening agent in the world that the Vatican II wanted us to be. All right, that's my... How do you see Louis Bouillet fitting into that? And what would Bouillet say both to our contemporary culture and to the crisis in our church today? I think... I think that uh, one of the points that your book demonstrates so beautifully is that Orthodox, being Orthodox in theology, devout as a Catholic, and deeply concerned about charity toward neighbor are not competing options. You know, <laughs> Dorothy Day was not a social justice warrior. Okay, She was a Catholic living in the world, and she was living the gospel. That's as, it's as simple as that. It wasn't nothing more complicated than That's right. the gospel. And I think Bouillet's, I don't want to pretend to speak for him, but given what I've read, his entire project was about making, uh, helping the baptized, every baptized person, not just consecrated religious, not just the ordained, all baptized persons recognize the, the eschatological vocation they have. Like they're created not just for greatness here and now. And the church's mission isn't just the establishment of some kind of a perfect community on earth. It's actually looking beyond this age, which doesn't mean we don't care about this earth or that we don't care about the people here, but the recognition that, that it's not in our gift or capacities to, we're not just a, the church is not just an NGO um, or a, a committed private enterprise toward the common good. 
it, it's involved in the common good. It's certainly seeking the common good. Yeah. But it's, it's our, 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 you know, our citizenship, as Paul says, isn't here. You know, it is. And that doesn't mean some kind of an ethereal heaven. I mean, the kingdom of God and its fullness yeah. where heaven and earth are reunited at the last judgment of Christ and all the rights, all the wrongs are going to be made right. And people are going to see the justice done. There was a wonderful article, actually, if you, I don't know if you see the Houston Catholic Worker magazine. The, yeah, uh, we do. Yes. Louise Zwick has a lead article on Bouillet's Cosmos and uh, the current situation of the church in the world. Oh, we just got that in the mail yesterday. I'm yeah. going to have. Yeah, I'm going to have it's, to read. It's very fine. It's a very fine essay. So I give up anyone who gets that or can track it down. Louise Wick's very good essay on Bouillet's Cosmos. I think that it's 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 one of the things that Bouillet presents, like Balthazar, it's a comprehensive kind of theological vision. And when you get it, it one thing that we often don't have because we live in a world of social media and 24-hour news cycles, we lose very quickly any perspective on events. Yeah. And little things become, I had a, a friend from South Bend texting me, about what had happened at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, all in a dither. And, you know, it's rightly to be offended, but, you know, like, well, it's not something you and I are going to be able to fix in any way. We're not related to this. So I think the tenets, yeah. like, what are we going to do? Perspective, and what we would, the old days would call the supernatural disposition or outlook, the perspective of eternity. Bouillet's theological visions op opens up this whole, that we're involved here, not just in uh, a battle involving secular persons, political bodies or political figures, that our real battle, as Paul says, is with principalities and powers. The, the, the cosmos has undergone a rebellion, beginning with angelic beings who've turned from God and who want nothing more than to co-opt us into their rebellion. And that our task is to say no to that, to say yes to Jesus Christ and his call to transformation and conversion. And in so doing, it's it's not just about changing structures. Um, structures are often broken and, and hostile to the human good. But simply fixing structures doesn't fix the problem. The problem lies, right. in, as Augustine says, it's in the heart of everyone. It's the division between the city of God and the earthly city is right down the heart of each of us. And so it's my own personal conversion. And for Bouillet, that's going to happen with two things. One, a deep engagement with the scriptures and a deeply lived liturgical sacramental life. And so to get, as Catholics, to recommit to a deeper dive into, the, especially the Gospels, but the Scriptures as a whole, and to into a deeper commitment to liturgical formation, to allowing the sacred liturgy to form us, is what we need to grow in that kind of vocation to holiness, and thereby make a difference in the world. Because if I, in fact, participate yeah. more faithfully at the Eucharist, I cannot but be more generous and charitable to my neighbor. That's right. You know, um, I'm going to want to extend that and pay it forward. I, I say to people all the time, I get emails all the time. How do I, you know, because I'm always talking about the universal cult to holiness and Dorothy Day and living precarity and living the councils and the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. And people write to me and say, how can I do that in my life? How can I do that in my life? <laughs> I said, I don't know. You have to figure that out for yourself, but you will be able to figure that out for yourself if you develop a prayer life, if you develop the cultus, the Eucharistic cultus in your soul, so you become kind of connatural to the Paschal mystery that is going on in, in the Eucharist. And so you do a, do a deep dive into your prayer life. You do a deep dive into the sacramental 
life. Go to confession as often as you possibly can. Go to the Eucharist as often as you possibly can. Pray the liturgy of the hours as often as you possibly can. Pray sacramentals like rosaries. Engage in Lexio Divina. Pray, pray, pray. And then lo and behold, boom, you will discover, now I know what to do. Yeah. Well, the, the work of every pastor I would describe as forming a culture in a parish. That's right. An alternate culture to the world around us. Um, where what's being people are being formed in a parish. And the challenge for us is that many parishes in contemporary United States are suburbia, and people really, other than showing up for Mass on Sunday, have no need to relate to that parish, That's and right. often no desire to relate to that parish, other than in the fulfillment of that obligation, which they see principally as obligation. All elements of that are problematic. A further problem for us is that as contemporary Americans, or maybe Europeans as well, we hear personal and interpreted as private. And we have a personal relationship to Jesus Christ, but it is never a private relationship to Jesus Christ. It's mediated through the church, through the community, his body on earth. And so that this is where the whole I'm spiritual but not religious thing breaks down. You know, you don't right. have a relationship with Jesus Christ apart from the church. You can't. You know, right. even those who have some kind of a, mystically tenuous relationship to the body of Christ who are not part formally of it, but will be saved. It is through in and through the church, Christ's body, that they're going to be saved, not apart from it. There's no parallel tract, you know, that's right. to be saved. This is how the church is the universal sacrament of salvation, even for those who are going to be saved, but are not part of the visible body. That's right. I always tell people there is no other Christ than the Christ of the church. Yeah. There isn't there. Oh, you there might is. think that there is, Full stop. But because that, but the, that's, that's the only a, way you know about Christ is if you if you think that that you've created a Christ for yourself, it's an idol. That's right. And what you you know, you, the, I'm spiritual but not religious. If you talk to people from, uh, say, Asian countries, and you ask them, what does it mean that you're spiritual not religious, and they begin to describe their spirituality, and you realize, oh, well, they're just Buddhists who don't really go to temple. All right. And yeah. you talk to I, I've taught Muslim uh, kids uh, who are kind of secularized to say, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And, well, I, unpack that for me. And what you discover is that, well, they're just Muslims who don't go to mosque. <laughs> and and it's the same. You ask a Catholic, well, who's spiritual, but not religious. And all of a sudden, God is love and he's inclusion and blah, blah. blah and you realize, well, they're just Catholics who don't go to mass. And, and that, that what that shows is that all of these experiences of God are mediated to us through whatever religious tradition we have grown up in. And, and in some sense, in terms of natural religion, uh, the, the incarnate, I think actually Ratzinger makes this point. The incarnation is not complete. Well, actually, Peggy makes this point, And I got this from Jenny Martin out at Notre Dame. Uh, that the incarnation is not complete until Christ submits his humanity to the very traditioning process of the church. Mm. All right. And so everything about Christ is submitted to the mediating structure of the church. If, if you think about it in antiquity, Roman and Greek religion was entirely cultic. That is to say, you didn't have to believe anything. You didn't have to believe what you were doing meant anything, but you did it because it was the most mayorum. This is the consuetudo. This is the custom. This is what we do. And they really did believe it held sort of the social and cosmic order in place, but it was totally devoid of any intellectual or uh, even affective content. It was magical. And, yes. Gnosticism had no ex very few external practices. It was a matter of this internal knowledge this <clears throat> yeah. that, that is saving. 
Christianity bridges that gap because Christianity is both a religion of devotion and affection, out external practices and intellectual conviction. It 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 you it would ancient religion could never get right. The gospel of Jesus Christ bridges that gap and gives us a religiosity that is more than just a cult and is more than just internal disposition, that actually the cult shapes the internal disposition. And the internal disposition is also governed by intellectual truths, not just my inner feelings or movements, and that the whole is what the gospel gives us. And you're only going to find that in the gospel of Jesus. That's right. That's right. You only He is, as Balthazar points out, in his meditation on this very topic, Christ is the point of contact, the point of contact between heaven and earth, between and there creation is no other. and God, there is and no there other. is no other. There is no other point of contact. Uh, you may not have to be an explicitly baptized Catholic in order to get the graces of that point of contact, but all grace goes through that Christ. And through his body, the church. And through his body, the church. Through him and then through his body, the church, which is why if Mary is the type of the church, uh, even though I think it would be inopportune to declare this as a dogma, Mary is, in this sense, the mediatrix of, of all grace, insofar as the church is the mediatrix of all grace. Yeah. Um, and I think people often misunderstand that when they hear Mary's the mediatrix of all grace. Oh, my goodness. So it's, it's they, not an elevation to a divine status. Exactly. That's, that's right. Exactly. Well, and I think that, therefore, yeah, this, these are all things that Bouillet would say as he looks out at our contemporary and if culture. if he didn't, he should have, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he would, and he kind of did say them. I mean, let's face it, our era today is not radically different in kind from his era. It's just more intense. It's it's his era now in our time on steroids. And, and, and more sophisticated because of the technological capacities we have that, that you know, there are more ways, for example, for... Um, that social control is exercised uh, because of sort of surveillance. And I'm not trying yeah. to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but, you know, oh, we, are, yeah. we are surveilled by our, not just, by, not necessarily by the government, we're surveilled by our, by companies, corporations who want our money. Oh, yeah. You know, you, like a, Amazon it, knows exactly what I want to buy and they will tell me what I want to buy. And they're right most of the time. Uh, there is a book. Okay. Uh, let me, let me get down here. People can see that I'm wearing my ratty jeans right now. I wasn't expecting to stand up. But anyway, uh, I plug this book all the time, so I'm finally going to show it online. This is The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the Frontier of Power. Hmm. So Shauna Zuboff, it is a huge book. Took me a long time to wade through most of it, but it makes the point that you're exactly making. Uh, there's another book I've been mentioning by a philosopher named Anton Barbake called a web of our own choose a web of our own making mm -hmm. making a lot of and, and and neither one of these authors are you know big time catholic theologian types or anything they're just coming at it from a purely philosophical or sociological perspective and saying we're, we're in some deep kimchi here we we are in deep the nexus is tightening. And that's how I think it's different from Bouye's era, right? Mm -hmm. Bouye could at least see the, the logical entailments mm -hmm. of the metaphysical underpinnings of the culture of his time. So he could be prescient as a lot of them were, but he didn't live to see the closing of the nexus. Yeah. What, what, what Rod Dreher in his book, Live Not By Lies, calls soft totalitarianism. It's a different right. kind. It's a kind of uh, ideological bullying and pressure that, that is exerted 
um, and about conforming to a, a set of propositions which are largely incoherent and illogical, but which are forced upon us by, whether it's by, you know, uh, the media, uh, corporations, even sports, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. Hearing yeah. of professional sports is, there's a, there's a credo that we're expected to buy into, um, which is which is contrary to the gospel of Jesus. Absolutely. And that's uh, that's something that I hammer home in my book, too, that, you know, that we're living in an era in which kind of let's let's develop a modus vivendi with this culture and just live with it is going to be an increasingly difficult thing for us. It's to like do. the lobster saying the warm it's getting warm in this pot, but I think we can live with it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Let's accommodate ourselves to it. Anyway, well, anyway, we're we're forty five minutes in, and before we went on, you said you kind of wanted to limit this to about uh, about that time. So we're at we're at the end of our time here. Are there any uh, thoughts that you'd like to add before we close off our conversation? We can always do a part three to our conversation. I'm happy to, I, I, first of all, it's deli- it's life giving and delightful to talk to you. So thank you. Uh, this has not you. worked for me. I think uh, the one thing that Bouillet would hammer home again and again, and we touched on this is that the liturgy is the place, he says, the liturgy is the place where the scriptures live. That is to say, if we really want to encounter the word of God, place to do it is the liturgy. Now, that doesn't mean we limit our encounters with the word of God to the liturgy, but that's the that's its natural milieu. That's the first thing. Secondly, it's the liturgy which forms us. Intellectually, yeah. you know, he quotes frequently uh, Pius XI and said in an audience, it wasn't written down anywhere, that the liturgy is the principal means of the ordinary magisterium principal instrument of the ordinary. How does the church teach through the liturgy? Think of children being formed. I was formed this way, day in and day out, going to Mass, my grade school experience, <laughs> hearing the words of the Eucharistic prayer, the formularies yeah. that the church gives us, shaping my consciousness. The liturgy does that. So the deeper and more invested all of us are in the liturgical life of the church, we'll understand the Word of God more deeply. We'll be able to be... Uh, the, the, the baptismal configuration that began then is deepened every time we celebrate it and will be better formed to deal with the culture, which is corrosive or lying or whatever it is around that's us. Right. And, and at the same time, and that's not to say it's not just a defensive thing because it also enables us to be, to have greater charity toward our enemies, toward those who are hostile to the, to the gospel, to those, to, to uh, our neighbors in need. But we'll, you that's know, right. it will happen not because we're social justice warriors, a company will happen because they we're full of charity, God's love, poured out for the life of the world. Absolutely. And the Novus Ordo liturgy, the Mass of Paul VI, is perfectly capable of, of doing that. I mean, it, Mother, I, the I, Mass I, of Paul VI, my vocation. mine too. I, I didn't realize until I was told by somebody that I'm not supposed to like the Novus Ordo, right? I, my, I grew up with it. It nurtured my vocation. I loved it. I thought it was beautiful and could be done beautifully. Yeah, I, I experienced some terrible masses growing up in the 1670s, but I experienced some great ones. I mean, this is the mass that inculcated the sanctity of a Mother Teresa, of a John Paul II, uh, you know, of, of, of an Oscar Romero, of a Stanley Rother, Mount St. Mary's. You know, uh, and so and I've anyway, experienced, I've experienced the extraordinary form and it's magnificent. It's beautiful. It's not this is yeah. I'm not because I'm suggesting that I find the, the current form nourishing, which it is. Doesn't mean I'm rejecting the old. It's not a, not a binary choice. That's why I, I attend an Anglican ordinary liturgy, because I think that's a beautiful, gorgeous liturgy. But I don't I don't hold it up as a weaponized thing against the Novus Ordo. I, I, I do both. 
we all have to ask ourselves, when I allow myself to, to, to allow the liturgy to become a flashpoint, am I in fact being duped by the evil one into allowing right. that which is the principle of the church's unity to become a means of division with my brothers and sisters? Amen. Let's end with that. I, I think that's that's a great way to end. And uh, it's always good to leave people wanting more. And I would love to speak to you some more about Bouye and other things. Happily, and, happily. It's a joy, Larry. Give my best to Carrie, and uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye now. God bless.